0: My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Bad rock! bad rock! Ah! You guys wanna go see a dead
1: body? Well, sometimes, that is is better.
2: Hello and welcome back to the KingCast. My name's Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts... We have sort of an outlier for today's show. This was a a movie that I had seen um, some years ago and completely forgot even existed uh, until our guest picked it. And I'm very eager to, you know, talk to her about why she might have done that. What can we say about our guest? She's an accomplished actress whose work within the horror genre will certainly uh, be familiar, I think, to most of our listeners. You've seen her in Oculus Hush, Gerald's game, uh, The Haunting of Hill House, and you'll soon see her in Netflix's follow up to that successful series, uh, The Haunting of Blind Manor. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the Kingcast stage, Miss Kate Siegel. How are you doing today, Hello. Kate?
1: Hello, I'm doing great. Thanks. When you said um, it was kind of an outlier today, I thought you were talking about me. I'm like, wow. No, no, okay. no, no. Okay, no, no. none taken.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, but you did pick. Um, at no point, even in the the brainstorming of this show, I sort of like went through a mental checklist of like all the things I was going to have to rewatch for this.
1: Right? Um,
2: I never even remembered a good marriage, which
1: right. is what it meant, by the way. without a doubt. Yeah, it's a strange one. It's it's way way out there, and it is. I'm sure we'll get into why I picked it as well. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah, it's um,
0: yeah.
1: a very interesting story and a very interesting film to examine from this point of view about uh, adapting King for the screen or even King adapting King for the screen. So, but let's not get ahead of ourselves.
2: Yes. Let us not spoil the gold. We usually start off having our, our guests tell us about their, their Stephen King origin stories. Where's, where does yours begin in the written world and the movies?
1: Um, Definitely in the written world. I would say that I have read every story Screenplay, uh, nonfiction, novella, every single story that Stephen King has written by the time I was, you know, and then I caught up. I was caught up probably around 22, 23. My dad was um, a guy who traveled a lot for work and he wasn't around a lot, but he loved Stephen King. And in the basement of our house, he had floor to ceiling bookshelves with all of the King novels that had been published. And this is when I was 10 or 11. And when he was gone, I'd go down there and read something so I'd have something to talk to him about when he got back. And oh, wow. that kind of approval I got from my dad really got me started. And I, um, I started with the short stories. And then by the time I got to the stand, I was hooked. I think The Stand is my favorite book of all time. I would say really? that including everything I've ever read. It's it's, such, it's like a great, the great American novel. It touches on all the things that I think kind of hum beneath our culture as Americans. And I think it will be taught in schools for decades, maybe even more.
2: And yet you didn't pick The Stand.
1: <laughs> I, you know why I didn't pick The Stand? Because I'm not a filmmaker. And what I, want, what I am is a, a constant reader. I mm-hmm. am a performer. I am a performer who have, has performed characters Stephen King has written on characters inspired by Stephen King. But So what I can speak to is story and like reference other King novels, and I can approach it from that point of view. But mm-hmm. The Stand is the type of movie, miniseries, anybody who's going to do that, that you really want a filmmaker to talk you through it. I didn't want to take something away from somebody who would have more to offer. I thought I could tackle a good marriage because I think I can pinpoint (laughs) what went wrong with it and what went right with it. But I don't want to go too far. (laughs) But it's my favorite type of King story. So, Well,
2: fair enough. That's fair. Mm -hmm. The stands like we we have yet to do a stand episode for, for all the ridiculous number of episodes we've already recorded. I think people are intimidated by it. Oh, Um, without a doubt. You know, but I think it, that one's so sprawling, and there's so much to talk about with it. I feel like by the end of this thing, we're we're gonna have to do. And it's I like the Dark really Tower.
1: A, yeah, you'll need a series for your Dark Tower. Beside, by the way, was insane. The oh, thank you. <sighs> um, but yeah, I think this Dan, you'll just need a series of people to tackle that. It, it's it's huge.
2: Well, maybe we'll get a chance with the when the CBS All Access series comes out. Mm. I imagine that'll be like a real big deal, and uh, mm-hmm. maybe we'll do something with it around that time. So I guess – so your, your your folks were totally cool with you reading, reading King
0: at an early
1: age. Oh, yeah. They barely knew I was there, so they didn't care what I was reading.
0: <laughs> Based on your description, I was about to call your dad a super cool guy. He was <laughs> like, no, totally
1: a super yeah, cool guy. They just yeah. like – my parents had very active lives that they right. were a part of. Not in the
2: basement with the the king books. No,
1: and like me and my sister, we turned out great. Like we were free range kids, but yeah, I was reading Stephen. There was no rules about movies, music, books, anything like that.
0: Well, that's cool. There's something about that time that that's just kind of, you know, I, I was born in 81. So I was, yeah. I kind of was coming of age in the late eighties, early nineties. And, you know, that it was that kind of last beautiful gasp before the internet, like revealed where all the perverts were, you know, yeah. and scared, <laughs> and scared parents. There's just something not so non-helicopter parenting about that era. Uh, you know, my I could read whatever I wanted to. Almost all movies were open to me. Cable was a thing. VHS was a thing. We got all the benefits like kids today with Netflix have. You know, we had like the, the proto stages of that, but without the parent locks, you know. Yeah. I think the only thing that they they didn't want me looking at was like late night Skinamax or whatever, you know. right. I
1: will say that between... It and Exit to Eden, the Rosie O'Donnell movie.
2: <laughs> right? No, oh, no.
1: I developed some really weird fetishes.
2: <laughs> <laughs> God, I'm like that's another movie.
1: Watching Exit to Eden, and like then all of a sudden, Bev's underground, getting you know what happens to Bev, and you're like, whoa!
2: <laughs> World's a
1: dark, scary place.
2: Oh man. I had forgotten about Exit to Eden, and that was like Dude. an HBO mainstay for a minute. Yeah, back it's in the day, so Rosie O'Donnell good. and leather.
1: Yeah. and then Dan Aykroyd in Bondage. It's so yeah. funny. Is it <laughs> just, yeah, just what I, I had
2: always good. been clamoring for was was Aykroyd, mean, Aykroyd and leather. It's
1: a sexy movie. <laughs> yeah,
2: it reminds me of. A, do you remember A Cure for Wellness? Like, yeah. wasn't that enou- It had like Anthony Hopkins and Matthew Broderick. And it's uh, like you know what I'm talking a about. A cure for
0: wellness is the Gore Verbinski movie. Oh, is, not a
2: cure for wellness. A cure uh, for
0: uh, uh, Road to Where is Road, like a road health, to Wellville.
2: Or, That's what it's Road
0: found. to Wellville. There you
2: go. There it is. Oh, we is finally found it. <laughs> I'm glad we ate up a minute of airtime getting to the bottom of that. <laughs> I people feel like
1: are, uh, that Exit Eden is about to get a bump on on its IMDb star meter like, <laughs> just after this airs.
0: Oh yeah, the King cast bump is notorious.
1: Huge. Yeah, it's going to skyrocket.
0: <laughs> yeah, there's a, a very odd cross section between Stephen King fans and Rosie O'Donnell slash bondage fans. So, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. so yeah, yeah, huge oh, yeah, huge cross section. You would think but that would be more that of a Venn Clive diagram. Barker is thing.
1: basically me. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> so let's talk about what you brought us today. A good marriage. Why don't, why don't you tell us why why you landed on this one?
1: The main reason I wanted to do a good marriage is because I'm pretty certain my husband's a serial killer, and I just don't know it yet. <laughs> And so, no, I don't actually think that. Please don't kill me, Mike. No, the reason I brought it is because there is this like subset of King stories. Sort of in the way, if you're a Doctor Who fan, it's like the River Song elements. All of those come and go, and you get a, a different sense of the show through that. When King writes about these women, he's always, in my mind, sort of touching on Tabitha. He has this real sense of... How a woman's mind works, how a a truly feminist woman's mind works, the way uh, they, what women are like in their actual private moments. Like he's never exploitative. You never see any of his female characters in his stories standing in the mirror and like pulling back at their cheeks, like men think women do, or like putting on painting their nails. They're always actually doing stuff, and I love it. I love when you look at like the gingerbread girl which is a story I've wanted to adapt for a really long time. Big Driver recently, and going all the way back to like Gerald's Game, and then you can even go back to The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon. When he really dives into the female psyche, I think it does something really beautiful to his stories. Because I think Stephen is very aware of what he is putting into his male characters. You know, He'll talk about how Glenn Bateman is his voice in The Stand, Or he can talk very much about Roland and how Roland followed him around um, since he was 18 years old. But there's something that comes out of him, even in Rose Matter, where you start to feel like there must be extremely strong women in Stephen's life. And I love these stories that happen in the mindset of them. I didn't know, but when this movie came out, I was already a huge fan of the short story because it's one of his stories that takes place mostly in the mind of the main character. And I thought it's unadaptable sort of in the way Gerald's game is unadaptable. Mm -hmm. And I think on some level, I was right, because even Stephen King couldn't adapt it as well as what The Good Marriage did to me (laughs) as a reader. Not to say, like, the movie itself is very successful. I think Peter Askin is an excellent director, and his shot composition is beautiful, and the story flows, and I follow it, and it's very complicated, and it's engaging. I just think it's the type of story that lives so much in, like, your lizard brain. That it's hard to tell because a marriage is so intimate, a marriage is so between two people that I don't think something like that ever really translates in, onto screen. And that interests me, like that there are some mediums that just shouldn't cross.
2: There was okay. another one that was kind of along. Oh, it was uh, Cujo was what we were talking about and how the movie loses all the interior life of the dog from the book.
1: Yeah, because you, you can't do that.
2: Yeah, it's the same thing here, I think. And And I
1: think, yeah, what happens is, at its heart, A Good Marriage, the story, the novella, is a woman alone in her house walking around. And then her husband comes home. They have a really intense conversation. And then they're kind of alone in their house for a while. And then she kills him. It's not a great setup for a movie. And so I guess the nature was to do that. You had to expand so much of it in the short story. But then you lose you know, Joan Allen's character as someone who is multifaceted and um, lost and confused because she needs to become a lead. She needs to become the female lead, the driving force.
0: I, I think this is also just a really tough movie to sell, especially to genre fans. Like I hadn't seen the movie. Like I read the, the novella when uh, Full Dark No Stars came out and honestly a lot of it kind of slipped my mind and when i was really watching because it's been 10 years now um but when i was watching the uh, the movie like i kept almost anticipating a twist like are they going to pull an M Night Shyamalan thing mm-hmm. here where you know she's really the serial killer the whole time and you know all this is part of her imagination mm-hmm. you know all this kind of stuff all that st- started percolating and that's not what the story wants to be that's not what the story is the story's Really about like wrestling with, you know, moral questions of, uh, yeah. of forgiveness and, and, uh, can you overlook somebody's faults? Okay, cool. Now, what, what if their faults is like, you know, your mm-hmm. husband's a serial killer? You know, it's and like. And also
1: the secret language of a marriage and the way you sure. start to read each other's minds versus the truth that no human being can ever truly be known. There's just no way.
2: Right. That's something he, he toyed a lot or, or around a lot with in, uh, Lisey's story or Lacey's oh. story. We still haven't figured out how to say Lisey. it properly. Lacey's story,
1: mm-hmm. but that, I can't wait. That, that secret um, language I'm of marriage. Now that when the when Lisey's story comes out, I'm coming back for that.
2: Okay, all right, fair enough. Sorry, I'm
1: putting a flag in it.
2: Pablo Lorraine's doing it, right?
1: Mm-hmm. And Good it's gonna, it's got a great cast, but yeah, I don't know when it premieres.
2: He's just he's a fantastic director. I was a huge fan of Jackie and. Ah oh, fuck. I'm forgetting the name of the other one I saw, but he's a really interesting pairing for, for that property. So what I'm, I love about that court. property,
1: yeah, is this is similar to this, is that a lot of it is is that feminine side of King, right? So there's like the super masculine Bachman side. And I think there is this uh feminine side that comes out in these women that he writes that in my heart it's Tabitha. It's just the way Tabby's voice comes through.
0: Do you think that is there like from page one, or do you think that that's something that, that uh, Tabitha like herself, since she's always the first person to read and gives notes along the way, do you think that she's able to inject her voice that way? Or do you think that he just knows her inside and out now? And that's just what he pulls from.
1: I think it's a great question. I, part of the reason this story speaks to me is my relationship with my husband for anyone who doesn't know is Mike Flanagan. He's a horror director and writer and I work with him a lot. And so I'm always very interested in how people create together and how intimate partnerships affect people's creative process. And what I know from Mike is that I was a a fan of his writing before we got together. Like I had read a couple of scripts and we uh, didn't even start dating until after we had worked together the first time months after. And I and other people have noticed this as well, has seen his work change since I have come into his life. Mm -hmm. There's a certain voice that his female characters take on that I think come from, and it's nothing specific I'm doing. I'm not in there rewriting. I'm not in there uh, saying to him, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't make sense. I think it's just the way that our lives became so intertwined. And I bet that's part of it with Tabby that at certain points, she probably early on was talking to him about, you know, the female voice, but now he just knows her and loves her and they have kids and he just knows what she likes to read. And so she must be the type of strong woman who I think inspires that kind of um, character.
2: When Eric asked that question, I was thinking it's the latter. It's probably a, a process thing where that tabby DNA is getting threaded in there as she's reading through it and offering her notes. But mm-hmm. I think you just sold me on on the opposite being true. In a, when I you're think, married, you, you, can have- you really do start absorbing part of the personality of the other person. Right. And oh, it, absolutely! You know, manifests in strange ways, and that's that's not a uh, that's not hard to imagine at all. Here, you, you know, know especially for how close they are.
1: Yeah, yeah. Part of what happens with Mike and I is that lots of people have opinions about your writing. Once you start handing it to people, people have notes. You know, studios have notes, publishers have notes, friends have notes, like trusted advisors have notes. And there's something that happens in a marriage, at least in our marriage, where you kind of pull away from that. I'm not his critic. That's not my job. That's not what I want to do. I'm not his critic. I'm not his mom. I'm not his producer. i none of those things. What I am is his partner. And the only time I'll call something out is if it's a typo or if it <laughs> literally doesn't make sense or makes your main character look stupid. And by the time it's getting to me, that never happens because he has a whole crew of people whose job <laughs> it is to, is to pick up typos and stuff. And I like to hope I mean, Tabby probably does her pet. This whole thing is like a fantasy in my mind about Stephen King's marriage, which is super weird. I I can hear (laughs) it as I'm saying it. Like, Kate Siegel thinks too much about Stephen King's marital life. But I just, I don't know. Someday I'll sit down with him and have dinner and and weird him out with a million questions. Including why he so completely ruined her in the screenplay of this movie. Uh, Yes. Sorry, guys. But like, he really ripped it up. All of my favorite stuff was gone. I was shocked that he wrote the screenplay.
2: Go on. So what, what were you? Uh, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Why don't you you tell us a little bit more about that? What did you miss in the adaptation? What what was the the, the key thing that you mm-hmm. you sat there like and started to stew over? Because I can tell, I can tell this got to you.
1: This really did, and I yeah, I I think it's an interesting as a fan. It annoyed me a lot because. For let's. The most obvious is that at the end, when the detective is sitting there talking to her in the book, we have not seen him before, and he doesn't come there thinking she's a serial killer and he's going to catch her. And then he passes out in her car, in his car, and then she has to go there with all this stuff from Beanie and her husband. And it's not; it's two people sitting at a table. It's much more like the beginning of um, what's that movie? And he's a German soldier, and the Jews are underneath the floor. And It oh, was really Inglourious, Inglourious thank Bastards. you. It's very much like the beginning of *Inglorious Bastards*. It's this tight, tense conversation that happens over the co- over the table, drinking cups of coffee, and it is an amazing scene in the book. And they just didn't trust it at all in the movie. All of that beautiful subtext, like when in the movie she, for some reason, the news decided to put a picture of Marjorie's driver's license on the news, which would never happen <laughs>
2: yeah, right. I
1: was like, uh, because she's about to go find the driver's license. And I guess that we needed that extra hint that it was him, but there was just so much proof right away for her in the movie when in the story, she had to do a little bit more research. She puts it together. She gets out his travel records and all of that stuff. And I know it right. feels a little slow probably if you're shooting it, Which is why I say this isn't the movie's fault. I think the director did a great job of creating pace and it needed it. But really frustrated me as a fan. Joan Allen's great
2: in it. She's, she's you know, she kills it in the movie. Anthony uh, LaPaglia is uh, a smidge less convincing to me uh, in his role. You talking Uh,
0: smack about Tony Poggs?
2: I just realized we have not laid out the plot of this. uh, this Um, I guess we should do that uh, before we go any further. A good marriage is about a woman who discovers that her husband is a serial killer. They've been married for several decades. They have kids. And one day while uh, poking around in the garage, basically, she comes across uh, IDs of, you know, these these women that have been uh, the victim of a, a local serial killer. And so sort of the twist of the the thing is that after she finds out, he kind of intuits that that she knows and they have a conversation where he just lays it all out. He's just like, yeah, fucking so I've been killing some folks. And it's um, the result of this, you know, uh, thing that's uh, happened to my personality back in the day. He's like sort of infected by the madness of this other kid. Uh, He grows up to become a serial killer and he just lays it all out for her like that. You know, and so now the now the conundrum is, does she turn him into the authorities, therefore, like destroying her own life and the lives of her children and their business? Or, you know, does she take matters into her own hands? And she takes matters into her own hands and, and, and kills them. Is it, that about it, right?
0: Yeah, that's the gist. yeah. It, and it was Um, forgive me if I'm wrong here, but I, I think King said that this was inspired by the BTK killer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And and not yeah. not specifically BTK, uh, which stood for bind, torture, kill. You know, hence all the yeah. the bondage stuff. Bringing it back to Rosie O'Donnell. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, but specifically, what happened to his wife whenever he was found, and how yeah. they had lived together for thirty years, and. The public outcry, and you can see this a lot this guilt by association stuff, where you know the public targeted her, saying she had to have known, and there's no way that she could have lived with a killer for 30 years and never, never have known. And that's the seed that sat in King's mind. And it's a fascinating angle to approach a story like this. And, and I especially love that he goes against um, all expectation whenever the confrontation happens. That's the part in the thriller that that you you go, okay if you ever tell anybody, I'm going to kill you. And, you know, and that's not what what the husband does, you know, because that's not what uh, you know, that this is somebody he loves and has shared his life with. This isn't a, a standard trope.
1: And I think that's where it gets lost a bit, because in the novel, in the novella that comes across, that at every turn, this is about their specific marriage. And King does that right. by weaving in the language of their marriage and by weaving in memories of their children and by phone calls and things like that. And you can't really do that. That's a that's something that's happening in the mind of the reader. It's not something that is a visual effect. Mm-hmm. And so when Tone's LaPegs tries to have <laughs> to act some of that, I feel for him because it, he doesn't have the room or the space. In the screenplay, to do the subtext that he kind of needs to do, which is like that shorthand that people who've been married for twenty five years have.
2: So, what is the worst crime you would help a spouse cover up? I, I guess full, you know, full blown murder is right near the top of the list, right down to you know some sort of fucking minor, low key uh, crime. Like, how high do you think you'd go before you turned him into the authorities?
0: Just just keep in mind, Scott, that you're talking to the woman whose husband uh, brutally murdered Jacob Tremblay. Like, with with great joy.
1: With great joy. He was like, Jake's going to love this part. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's so funny because I just got a text message from my lawyer saying not to answer that question.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I think Um, I would go, like, let's say tax fraud. Like I don't think I would go tax fraud because now you're talking about like some sort of crippling financials thing that would just destroy you for the rest of your life or any sort anything along those lines I wouldn't want to get involved with. But, but a nice double murder? Sure. Yeah, sure. Definitely,
1: whatever. definitely with that a hit murder. And run.
2: I think with I mean, what are the circumstances of the murder? Like if <laughs> if there were
1: <laughs> this is amazing.
2: Like well, like let's say like intruders broke into the house. And she thought they were armed. They weren't armed, but she like guns them down, which is a hilarious thing to imagine my wife doing, by the way. But um, like, and and so uh, would I help? Well,
1: but I do think there's something important to bring up here, which is that I don't know you guys, but I'm assuming both of you are white, correct? Yes. Correct. So we have a way different situation here. We <laughs> oh, have course. a different level of privilege about crime and and anything like that. And so Mm -hmm. I just think if we're going to talk about helping your fiance get away with a crime or helping your husband or wife get away with the crime, we have to acknowledge our own privilege, which is that the police will not immediately look at me and think I'm a killer and try To uh, take away my rights as a citizen, and like in this day and age, it needs to be called out that we're having a very privileged conversation right now. Uh,
2: Fair enough, fair enough. Mm -hmm. I hadn't, I hadn't thought to, I hadn't thought those two steps ahead. But you're absolutely correct.
1: Well, because when you said that, like if somebody broke into your house and your wife shot them, I immediately thought of Breonna Taylor.
2: Yes, (laughs) and I was like, oh, what what
0: if your wife shot cops?
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, I I was was trying to imagine.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I was just trying to imagine a scenario wherein my wife would be called upon to use a gun on somebody. I'm trying to imagine a scenario where uh, she would be right to feel jeopardized, but maybe wasn't within the legal bounds, you know? So that was just the first thing that came to mind.
1: If somebody hurt your children or your pet or like something or your family and your wife went and killed them.
2: Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. she yeah.
1: She had some proof, but maybe not rock solid proof. She just like knew in her heart that they were the ones that hurt the kid. And she went out there and killed him.
2: Hmm. Yeah. Would you hide the
1: body? Yeah. yeah I
2: think I might. You know, if it was my kid or my dog or something, I would be pretty
0: pissed. Yeah. Cause yeah. your first scenario, Scott, is the opening to Chicago. So, but <laughs> <laughs> <so, laughs> so you might, you might be the, the Patsy, the, the Patsy husband in that scenario. I don't know.
2: Eric, what about you? If your, you, if your spouse covered up the murder of somebody who, Fucked with your kids or your pets or something. Well,
0: I'm trying to think because, you know, I, am not married. Uh, I'm not in a relationship at the moment. Um, I can't think that of any girlfriend I've ever had that I would be willing to, you know, I, I'd be willing to, uh, to help cover up a murder. But, you know, the thing that I instantly gravitated Towards like where my mind went, like you can, I can, you know, would I help my, you know, my mom kill, you know, or mm-hmm. you know, not kill, yeah. but like cover up killing a neighbor or something, or you know, my uh, my nephews who I love dearly, you know, if my uh, my my oldest nephew just turned thirteen, you know, and he's mm-hmm. starting to become an actual dude, so like, what if three years from now he fucking you know, hit somebody with his car and shows up in my, in my front door, what would I do? Like, it's like, yeah, I, I would take a bullet for him, but would I, you know, help him get away now, with, with something. I don't know. if. What I could. about,
1: and I don't want to use your nephew cause that's, that's rude, but let's say a brother or something and let's take away the accidental cause of it. But this is, what's that, that like monstrous Stanford uh, kid who raped Brock, what's his face? Brock oh, Turner. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. yeah.
1: So there's a little bit of intent there, right? Like he did a terrible thing, but he did it on purpose. Are you going to cover that up?
0: No, no. My my no. initial inst- like, I maybe yeah, if so I sat and thought about it, I can, I could, you know, maybe myself into putting myself in a bad position. But I just know my full heart wouldn't be in it, which means I would get both him <laughs> and I caught doing it. Exactly. So it, would be a, it would be a is the key here.
1: Right. A half-ass cover up. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, <laughs> That's I think true. intent. I, I mean, think it would
2: be important in the in whatever scenario it is that i would I would have to think that she had meted out some some form of justice, not just done a bad thing. you know those are two completely different situations but
1: but, but I, I do yeah, think that's right bringing this back to a good marriage, one of the differences between the book and the movie is that when Darcy has to kill her husband in the movie. She turns into like this stone cold badass. Yeah, she's on top right. of him going like, I'm on top now. Don't you like that? Steve, uh, yeah. what are you doing? Because in the <laughs> book, she's like, he's there. She's covered in his blood. She's sobbing. She doesn't know what she's doing. She's shaking. She like can't get herself together. And that to me is so interesting that even like, because she's very flawed. Like this is a truly selfish woman. You know, mm. in the novel and in the movie, she's obsessed with the status of her of her family more than the lives of these girls that were taken through rape and torture, including a ten year old boy. Like it's very clearly a selfish choice this woman makes. There are two yeah, anti heroes the, here. They
0: live that part out of the uh, of the movie. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah,
1: they sure did. And that's because in the book, that's the thing she can't ever let go.
0: Right. Mm. So this
1: woman, these two anti heroes she's willing to let go of i think it they say it's a dozen young women that he rapes tortures and kills until she can kill him on her own but she can't let go of the 10-year-old boy and and all of that kind of second level of it you know darcy being a little bit less sure all the time having those doubts it it just wasn't there for me and it's not because of the film the film's well directed and shot and acted and it's like a real fun thriller but but steve himself uncle steve did did himself a disservice I,
0: I i might push back a little bit on on how well it's it's directed it has it has a little bit of a flat quality to me I, it feels a little vanilla uh mm. and stagnant and yeah. at least for me and in, in my viewing of it but uh I, I will say that that Joan Allen carries it as as best she can through most of it and it to me I didn't even get any real spark of anything really dynamic until Stephen Lang really entered the picture and and he's such a force on on yeah. screen that the way he plays it like just instantly brought the the movie to life in a way that it wasn't before that to me yeah. and and again not to uh, to bag on uh, Tony Pugs everybody's favorite
1: oh, um, two
0: You know he he carries a lot of that that performance, but like you said, he's kind of failed on the page. And uh, Mm -hmm. I don't know, like I I just felt like the first half an hour of this, I'm just like, oh man, what the hell am I getting myself into here? This is like just barely a step above a a Hallmark movie or a movie of the week kind of thing. Um, And then. You know, then things started getting interesting. That's when they were delving into the that that kind of gray area of turning tropes on their heads and and all this other stuff that that became very interesting. And honestly, the only thing keeping me watching in that beginning was was watching Joan Allen and watching her wrestle with, with yeah. everything.
2: You mentioned think- earlier that mm-hmm. um, that uh, King was inspired to write this in in response to what had happened with um, Dennis Rader, the BTK. Killer, I found in in sort of looking into this movie after after watching uh, rewatching it that Raider's daughter was in in particular was not happy about to hear Stephen King say in an interview that he had been inspired by this. Hmm. I'm curious what what y'all think about that. Do you think the story is exploitative?
1: It's I
2: uh, it's hard to say, right?
1: Yeah, I can't. I'm so I can't take the side of Dennis Raider or Dennis Raider's family. Like I feel for that daughter who had. Her life turned upside down. I feel for that. But I think when you start doing such intense crimes against humanity with such a cruel, uh, with such cruel actions, yeah, you can be exploited. I'm okay with that. Yeah. I guess maybe that's a double standard I have, but I think she has to wrestle with something that his victims are also wrestling with. And she needs to maybe take that feeling of rage where it should be which is to her father
0: good answer i mean yeah i mean you're you're right like from her point of view of of course the revelations of what happened what her father was capable of and and the scrutiny that her family had to live under afterwards and you know how that's going to hang over them for the for the rest of their lives like i I absolutely feel empathy for that but that that's a, a very unique point of view and just the text of the story isn't exploitative though you know i mean it, 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 if right. this was a, a kind of run-of-the-mill by the numbers uh, thriller then then sure i'd be on her right. side but but king isn't doing this to glorify the killer he's not doing it to you know shame the victims or you know his own family you know he, he's interested in, in diving into that very un- unique psychology between uh, a, a killer and their their partner to me that's interesting that has artistic merit behind it it's not just a thrill thrill ride
1: I've been trying since, because I think it's, um, it's bad artistic karma to get in a podcast and trash somebody else's movie. But um, so I've been thinking, well, if you think you're so smart, Kate, how would you have done it, right? How do you think that you could compete with this? And it took me forever. And it wasn't until you just started talking about that combined with what you said about when uh, the detective came in, when Holt comes in. And I realized that if I were to have to adapt this movie... I would put it into a season of like the, the detective of like the Mr. Mercedes, the outsider, mm. that guy. For sure. Have him from the point of view of the detective tracking this BD killer. And then we he finds out when he has the sit-down with the wife that, that she knew and this is hers, and she tells the story. And to me, I think because again It's dynamic when the detective is a part of it. It's dynamic when you put a third person in a marriage, right? Yes. You throw that in and it blows up the marriage. It's not the marriage we're interested in. It's the point of view of the third person because it's that Chekhov thing. Every happy family is the same, but every unhappy family is whatever, whatever, whatever. Somebody – you know, quote that correctly and tweet it at me and make me feel bad about being a bad theater student. <laughs> but it's like that. Everyone's marriage is different, but it's all basically the same. And it's the point of view of Holt that is interesting.
2: In this version, her storyline would play out exactly the same, but he would only be observing bits and pieces of it as he's trying to put it together.
1: Yeah. It, her storyline is the B storyline.
2: Got it. Yeah. And I so, like that approach. Yeah.
1: And then at the end of the episode, or I may, it could even, I don't know if you can stretch it to a whole season. I mean, it's a it's not a very meaty, Thing. But at the end of it, you actually get that conversation at the table.
0: It's funny that you you brought up uh, the Bill Hodges trilogy because I actually put it in my notes watching this. Going like mm-hmm. that character that that Lang plays is the prototype for Bill Hodges. He's mm-hmm. the retired detective, and he can't let go of chasing this this uh, killer who got away essentially, Mm -hmm. which is exactly what Mr. Mercedes is. Um, Yes. And uh, you know, and it's really fascinating to me to see, especially going through King with the fine tooth comb, you know, Mm -hmm. as we're doing this podcast, you know, just stumbling upon these dry runs of, of, of ideas, like obviously this stuck with him, but it,
1: well, you you come back to fire starter in the institution, the Institute, Mm -hmm. you get a lot of that. He does a lot of those echoes of characters. You even get similar names sometimes.
0: Right. Yeah, that's true. And, and sometimes brings them whole ass in the other books yeah. like Father <laughs> Kelly. And- hey, <laughs> yeah.
1: nice to see you. Weird choice, but okay.
0: So here's
2: an interesting little factoid I found out just this morning. I, I rewatched the movie this morning and then I went digging about it online because I couldn't really remember any. I didn't even remember how I had seen it, just that I had seen it before. Mm-hmm. Didn't remember when it came out. Didn't remember who directed it. So I started digging around. Um, that's when I learned that King wrote the script. I had missed that in the opening Me credits. Me too. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and was sort of shocked to to learn that. And then the next thing is. Uh, the, the guy Real
0: quick before you get into that, uh King's credit on IMDb is just story by. It's so bizarre because usually when he writes there is no other writing credit, but usually when that's what happens when somebody adapts him, that he gets the story by credit, but when he writes, it's usually written your know, screenplay by Stephen King. It's mm-hmm. I, I don't know if that's just a weird IMDB listing thing or if that's the the way it is in the movie, but it, it's a weird detail, but it's it's definitely something mm-hmm. off. You know, I don't yeah, I don't something know.
1: Something went there. Uh,
0: I don't know if that that there's some sort of you know Writers Guild uh, attribution thing going on. I have no idea. Definitely
1: but, is. Well, I yeah, that's interesting. I wonder what because there are specific rules to what you can call it depending on how it's written. Isn't that interesting?
0: And again, it's B, so anybody can yeah. change anything. Yeah. And maybe there's <laughs> yeah, just yeah, a, sure. a typo. Well, oh yes,
1: you were talking about how you about went back director. and you couldn't remember how you yes.
0: Oh right, uh, yeah, and sorry,
2: the, the director Peter Askin is uh, also a guy that I was unfamiliar with. So I looked him up, and you know what I found out? This guy is the cousin of Robert Durst. If you saw the HBO um, true crime docu-series, The Jinx, uh, he's the guy that... The burping. The burping guy who uh, ultimately (laughs) just, you know, kind of started talking into his mic about how he'd done these murders. That guy's a real fucking character, and that sent me on a whole rabbit hole search about what's going on with Robert Durst these days. It turns out, after years of, um, you know, delays to this trial that he's he's supposed to mm-hmm. have out in uh, Los Angeles, uh, that it finally went to court on March 2nd and then was immediately postponed because of COVID-19.
1: Oh, <laughs> that man. guy is the
2: slipperiest motherfucker I have ever seen in my life. It'll be curious to see if he actually survives to trial, which is um, apparently I wonder year. if that's
1: his goal. Isn't that dark and morbid, but wouldn't, you know, at a certain point, he's like, I don't want to be dragged through this.
2: I, I didn't really obsessively research this, but in the reading that I did, I couldn't determine whether or not he was in custody right now or if he was like, you know, under house arrest somewhere. But I imagine he's in custody because it seems like that guy would probably, you know, yeah. cash in his own chips. Oh, he has before...
1: run real fast.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah. He likes to roam. But, uh, but anyway, I thought that was an interesting. That's uh, got to little...
1: be why he was drawn to this story, right?
2: I don't know. There's an interesting parallel there, right? Yeah. Robert Durst was married to a woman for some years and, you know, is alleged to have to
0: have killed, killed her. And, a
1: bunch of people.
0: Yes. Yeah. And then And
1: so yeah. I wonder his, if he was like, oh, I can bring something to this.
0: Hmm. But what's his relationship to Fred Durst? That's the important question. That
1: is the what is the relationship to Fred Durst?
0: Identical <laughs> brothers.
1: Yeah. yeah. Uh, murder twins.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we saw. I told somebody that Robert Durst thing earlier and they thought I was talking about Fred Durst
1: like, no 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 no,
2: not the not the the Limp Biscuit guy
1: I the like the, the world guy. in which you are just so excited that this filmmaker is related to the lead singer of Limp Biscuit that you <laughs> yeah. need to tweet about it
2: like that that would be that, that would be a thing good. that I would need to tell people
1: yeah you're just like you guys you guys are crazy
2: <laughs> it would have been pretty interesting if he was related to Fred Durst though
1: but is Robert just, you guys were way off topic that's how good this movie is that's <laughs> how that's how this, that's movie how is this show so goes good yeah, yeah I like it
2: well you know what I I was worried that just on the off chance that we we didn't have enough to say about this movie to fill the time you know what I did I went and looked up some La Paglia facts and oh, I have those written down the if you to, you,
0: <laughs> La Paglia's. La Paglia's.
1: La Pogs Would Tony like Pogs.
0: To, Do you Mm want, do y'all want to hear these exciting facts?
1: I do. Please
0: tell me about his earring
2: and the client. That one. I did not get any research on. How tall is he? Just like, just as a
1: reference.
2: 13 feet tall.
1: That's insane. That's exactly what I thought.
2: Yeah. It's, he looks shorter on camera, but uh, the first thing was that his first role was he played a mechanic in an episode of amazing stories. After coming over to oh, uh, the United States from Australia. But it was the Steven Spielberg episode. The the episode that everyone remembers from Amazing Stories. The mission about, you know, the plane. And the, there's like a cartoonist and draw wheels on it or some shit. Yeah. Anyway. So he's in that for a second. Also. He plays the wheels. He plays the wheels. Uh, it was all mocap. Uh, he Also, he was originally cast in Django Unchained. I guess he was going to play one of the Australian brothers at the end and then had to back out for uh, scheduling issues or something and said the production was completely out of control. He sounds. uh Wow. Uh, shocked. M- yeah. Not amused.
1: And that's it. it. That's the end uh, of uh, all uh, the
2: LaPaglia facts. I, I, you so know, you, well, so
1: you, you looked up two LaPaglia facts.
2: Well, no, <laughs> I looked up many. I only found two <laughs> worth sharing. <laughs>
0: big difference it, he wasn't the only one because like, it wasn't the wolf creek guy in that as well and that's why tarant and he backed out at the last minute and that's why tarantino said screw it i'll I'll do it and it turns in like the worst australian accent ever, ever that makes more sense film.
2: than what i read i read something i think it was on like indie wire or something about this they were saying joseph gordon levitt was going to play the other brother and then he had to fucking back out too so i don't know it's possible that that's kind of what happened but the wolf creek guy being in it instead of joseph gordon levitt sounds more believable to me
0: <laughs> yeah right something that i would like to touch on is full dark no stars as a novella collection oh, real quick yeah. sure um king uh, says and that this is a collection about retribution also in there is big driver in 1922 Uh, 1922, in particular, I thought was uh, adapted very well Mm -hmm. uh, for Netflix. Um, And then one that wasn't adapted yet called Fair Extension, which is. uh,
1: I love Fair Extension. Which one is that? Fair Extension is when um, the neighbor gets everything and this guy uh, is really jealous of his neighbor and he meets the devil on a road outside of the airport and he trades his neighbor's life for all of his neighbor's worldly goods.
0: Fucking Right? He has cancer? He, right yeah, yeah mm-hmm. he's dying of cancer and he uh the the devil says well i can give you life well and it's not the devil he's got that ridiculous name that's an anagram for devil it's like oh, the easy God, I
1: don't like when like he elvid does that.
0: or something <laughs> yeah it's, it's elvid. the same one
1: that eats the fish in that weird story and, and oh like, the man yeah, with the black
2: get, hat yes we're in the man in the yeah. black suit yeah
1: we get what you're doing steve we get that it's the <laughs> devil and you said elvid You're very, elvid. very, very uh, i
2: love man in the black suit though
1: yeah <laughs> <laughs>
2: why don't you why, why are you uh, why are you not 100% on that one
1: um, I think there's some uh, these like childhood fantasy stories that he does very well mm-hmm. and I think there are some of them that feel like sketches for later stories and to me there's a certain amount of sketching part of the talisman or, or referencing I guess because the man in the black suit came after of of like stealing from a story he's already done in that.
2: Hmm. I enough. did
1: like the throwing the fish that that's a really <laughs> creepy and the mouth opening and the getting the whole fish that reminds me of, um, Oh, who is it? Clive Barker does this, this short story that I can't find anymore that I read when I was in college. It freaked me out so much. And it's about a huge giant monster with a big mouth. And this kid has been left in his car by his parents and, there's a description of the monster picking up the kid and eating him in one gulp. And and the last thing the kid does is he pukes into the mouth of the monster and then the monster <laughs> eats him. And it is so disturbing and I hate it so much. And I think about it all the time.
2: <laughs> That's our Clive Barker, all right.
1: <laughs> Clive Barker, he is not pulling any punches. But anyway, fair extension, that guy comes back, says, I'll take your cancer away, but you have to give me someone else's life. And basically, he gives him his neighbor's life, and that's the type of thing where I, when I read that one, I was like, "Oh man, I might do that. If put in (laughs) that situation, I might do that." Yeah, because he picks somebody
0: who's who kind of deserves it, right? And and has has been and every, every I think everybody knows somebody like this who you might not be enemies with, but you're you've seen them kind of skate through life and take advantage Mm -hmm. of people and, and get to positions of power, you know, with that and have a good life. And, uh, yeah and so he goes no fuck that guy and uh, his family and (laughs) they can they can go to hell uh and uh like the guy's wife gets cancer and like fucking one of his kids has a heart attack and like all this crazy shit happens while his life is going well but it's not like one of those monkey monkey's paw things
1: yeah where
0: it's like yep you're gonna pay for you know passing this on it's like nope just at the at the end he's like yep, cool no he gets away
1: with it good life yep like it's deeply creepy in that way although i have to say i'm probably the that person that somebody would give cancer to like that would give away my <laughs> life they'd be like f you kate Siegel, you stupid jerk <laughs> i feel like i've wronged some people in my day that would do that that
0: yeah that, that's that's the the other edge to that sword is it's great if you have the power but not so much if somebody else well, has it the, in your, isn't
1: the moral yeah. of that story is that we're both of those people Right, like yeah. that whole story is that you are so, sometimes you're the neighbor and sometimes you're the guy you know well, it, <laughs> great description Kate
0: my memory of it is is also again again forgive me if I'm if I'm misremembering this because it has been 10 years since I've read this this collection mm-hmm. but my memory of it is that he at the he leaves the story wanting more so it's like he gets everything that he's ever wanted and he's still like i think that he and his wife are like wishing on shooting stars or something they're like stargazing and he wishes for more like after he takes away everything from you know this poor bastard and his family and you know gets an extension on his life he still wants more he's not happy and he's not content with that
1: yeah it's a certain yeah it's there's just a lot of cool pathology there
0: no, but it's interesting that whole novella, the the whole retribution angle, just how they all the stories mirror each other in some way. You know, 1922 is about a husband trying to kill his wife. You know, Big Driver it isn't so much partners, but it's, you know, plays in that gray area of
1: it's the revenge on a
0: rapist. Uh, it is revenge on no. a rapist, but that she kills somebody without being 100 percent sure that he was the one that did it. Right. No, 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 and, no
1: she's 100 percent sure he has his mom has her earrings. Remember? Well, at
0: the end, right? But I thought the whole thing was that that she has a crisis of conscience that she thought that she killed the wrong person. Or, I think there maybe, was a
1: moment, maybe. but there's but a moment she's... where
0: it makes
2: it seem like it's his brother, right? Yeah, right. But it's not. Yeah. I
1: think she, but she doesn't. He's not dead until she knows. Okay. okay. Yeah, but there is a certain amount of it. She makes the decision bef- to kill him before any facts happen.
2: Right. 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 right.
1: Yeah. God, I love that story interesting I had never saw the movie. movie as well yeah. uh, got similar problems
2: so yeah, maybe like a either.
1: female filmmaker could have thrown in on one yeah. of these like I think uh, Big Driver you know King notoriously never uh, really does descriptive rape or sex scenes except for you Bev
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and i will counter that because the thing that traumatized me the most i read king at, at such an early age and i mentioned it on on this uh podcast uh-huh. before uh but the there's he has a uh there's a novella he wrote called the library policeman oh, where oh yeah yeah and and Poor that for he That's i remember a- him getting very descriptive of that and that skeeving me out because oh, yeah. i was like the kid's age it's a kid that gets that gets uh raped in a library yeah and kid- uh It's a boy. Um, And yeah. And I remember whatever he The trash can
1: man with the gun. Yeah, the kid. The trash can man with the kid. Not the kid, not a kid, a child, but Capital Kid. Yeah. From the stand.
0: That is true. Interesting. Yeah.
1: But yeah, no, Library Policeman's a very disturbing story.
2: That one's probably not going to get adapted anytime soon.
1: (laughs) No. Probably not not headed for the big screen. Day and age. Kate, I'm um, curious but,
2: um, mm-hmm. what you, how you feel about Rose Matter. That's a title oh, that's come up a couple times oh, uh, recently, and i do you? Okay. This is, this I am, is what I'm, I keep hearing.
1: Mm-hmm. Stephen King hates Rose Matter. Right. But no, it is, um, I read it in my early 20s, and I go back to that story quite a bit.
2: I remember it being, I read it when I was much young. I, I probably read that one when I was too young to. To really appreciate it, but I remember it being just bonkers by the end.
1: It is. It's Lovecraftian. It's just insane.
2: Don't they go through the painting and it's like, isn't it like borderline Dark Tower shit, where it's in like another another world Mm -hmm. and there's a Minotaur and yeah, 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 yeah.
1: Yeah, they jump into um, another world where they're you know how in Good Marriage she sees the mirror people, Mm -hmm. like uh, the mirror Darcy. This is so. Rose goes into this and meets the other world, Rose, and becomes this other woman and and confronts her abusive husband and takes him down into the maze and saves a baby. And there's also like the fear of death and pomegranates that make you forget everything and like (laughs) really, and like statues with huge penises and like spider women. But uh, it's, it's really cool.
2: <laughs> wow, that's more than I remember about it.
1: Oh, it's go back I'm, to it. It's, it's I'm curious,
2: too. I think I might reread it because uh, you're maybe the third or fourth person I've talked to in the last, I don't know, six months where it was like, they I went I, to I, I, for it. I genuinely yeah. like uh, Rosemary, And
1: you get to see Cynthia again.
2: That's true. From Desperation and the Regulators. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I
1: love Desperation.
2: Didn't that one come out before those, though?
1: Um, let me look. I have it up here.
2: I feel yes, like Yes, Rose
1: Madder was much earlier. So, yeah, yeah since he brings this is the first time we meet Cynthia and then she comes back in desperation.
2: Someone could do Rose Matter would whenever it was that I read it, I was again very young, but I also remember I'd seen like Sleeping with the Enemy on HBO like around that time. And I remember thinking and this this description has stuck with me all these Years since whether or not it's true was that it was sort of like sleeping with the enemy with fantasy elements in the back third of it right. um you could it's, it seems like you could someone like could make the enemy
1: meets labyrinth
0: <laughs> yeah. um, yes
1: i mean it would take a really intense adaptation there is a ton of stuff where most modern audiences would just be like what the fuck this guy puts a fake bull mask on, and it welds itself to his head, and then he becomes the bull, and then he talks to himself with his own hand puppet. Like it's, uh, and it's supposed to be really scary. I don't know how you would adapt that kind of stuff, but it's a Holy really fun read.
2: I do need to reread this because I don't remember. Well, that sounds
0: like a challenge for challenge for you and Mike. Since uh, yeah, get
1: on. It. No way, man. Yeah. I'm I'm holding out for for the remake of Lizzie's story in twenty years. <laughs> When they're like, oh, now we can make it a movie again. Or uh, Gingerbread Girl, which I love and needs to be done. But I can't actually do it because it's basically hush on a beach. Yeah. yeah. So there's a lot of Stephen King women I want to play.
2: Well, lucky for you, they're going to keep making Stephen King movies and miniseries until uh, we have all left this planet. Uh, So I think there'll be plenty of opportunity for that. And if Mike keeps making these things, you know... (laughs) Scott yeah, have an inn, I though. guess. Speaking of which, uh, when your husband was was on the show, he told us a fantastic story about humiliating himself in front of Kurt Russell.
1: Yeah, well, <laughs> he does this on airplanes all the time.
0: <laughs> well, humiliate himself in front of Kurt Russell. <laughs>
1: <laughs> he just like can't hold it together on an airplane. He always spots people on planes. He's got a great eye for celebrities, and he is incapable of acting like a human. <laughs> he is ador- because like, he's just like a film fan at his heart and so he he's thinks of himself even in those in those moments as like the 12 year old who wants to make movies and not filmmaker mike flanagan which i think is really sweet
2: well i was gonna ask just to just to bring some balance to y'all's dual appearances on the show if if you had a good story to share about uh Mike humiliating himself in front of a celebrity, but it sounds like that's happened a few times.
1: I just got it. There's so many options. <laughs> <laughs> this you is a standard
2: question. We're going to start asking all guests. I just
1: <laughs> How did Mike Flanagan <laughs> humiliate himself yes. in front of various <laughs> celebrities?
2: Bonus points to the first person that uh, has a story about him doing it in front of Sylvester Stallone. That's the tango and cash deal. If you can get that Kurt Russell wow. and Sly Stallone, <laughs> someone's got one. I want to hear it. <laughs> let's talk about what you're working on now what do you want to what do you want to plug what's coming um, up?
1: right now i am up in vancouver and we're about to start shooting midnight mass which is the next original series from intrepid and mike and netflix
2: what is what is midnight mass about
1: midnight mass is about a small community on a fishing island who start to experience unexplained miracles
2: into it I'm into yes. anything with an island. I like a good island story.
1: I'll tell you something. The island story is what has allowed us to get back into production during COVID.
2: <laughs> because it's
1: everyone's isolated, not a lot of extra characters, and we're outside. Bonus. So Bonus. is it not
2: so not a very populated island? Not a deserted no, island, no. right? Like just a just a low key.
1: Small low key island.
2: Right on, right on.
1: What could possibly go wrong?
2: Nothing, Nothing ever.
1: Nothing.
2: Only
0: good things happen yeah. on islands. Yes. <laughs> sounds like one of those uplifting uh, God's Not oh, Dead yeah. style movies.
1: Not at <laughs> Just like a romantic comedy. There's a lot of meat cute, you know.
2: Yeah. <laughs> it's what we've come to expect <laughs> from Mike. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm.
2: Well, thank you again. And yeah, this thanks was a so much of fun. for having
1: me. Um, yeah, of and course. so just to wrap it up, thumbs down on the movie, but thumbs up on the novella. Yes. So there's I that.
0: Agree. <laughs> okay. I agree. Thanks for having me. Many thanks to Kate Siegel for joining us for that very lively, very nerdy Stephen King discussion. And that's saying something because we get fairly lively and extremely nerdy all the time.
2: She's a sharp one, that, that Kate Siegel. Good Lord. When when she picked this title, I remember thinking, man, I hope we can fill an hour on that. But uh, we didn't have any problem coming up with stuff to talk about for that one.
0: That was uh, a great episode. We do acknowledge that it's not a more famous or juicy uh, Stephen King title. But, you know, that's kind of the whole point of this thing is that we're going to cover the, the big ones and all the little ones and the bad ones and the good ones and everything in between. You know, we kind of want to have a whole picture of, of uh, what Stephen King's output is. All the nooks, all the crannies. We got to do this whole thing. And speaking of, this is our kind of unofficial Bly Manor week. Mm-hmm. Kate, of course, appears in Bly Manor. And her husband, Mike Flanagan, uh, you know, is the showrunner, creator, director, writer, dude. And Jack came of and, all trades. That yeah. That dude knows the Stephen King stuff, too. As you know, he came on and did the, the 1408 episode for us. Mm-hmm. I guess we can say he will be appearing uh, this Friday on our KingCast Patreon yes. for an exclusive Patreon episode where he dives into Hearts in Atlantis.
2: This is sort of an unusual circumstance because we actually recorded the Hearts in Atlantis episode first. Mike had a good time doing that and <laughs> had like some weeks to kill before he uh, went up to Vancouver to shoot. Um, midnight Mass. Midnight Mass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's like, yeah, I'll do. I'll do another one until so we got him on the phone real quick to to do that. It is like one of the earliest things we recorded for this show, so I think it's it might be a little stiffer than uh, what we've sort of grown into. Would you do you think that's fair to say?
0: Yeah, I mean, I haven't listened back to it, but it's definitely going to sound a little wonkier than, than our normal uh, episode. But you know, it's, it's Mike Flanagan being as intelligent as he is about. Uh, about a topic, uh, we figured mm-hmm. because because we've already kind of moved past that stage where we were super duper strict on our structure of we are only talking about the book now. Now we're only talking about the movie right. that it would make sense that it would be more of a an archived episode that our Patreon subscribers can hear. That's not saying that anything about the quality of of the episode. I think that it's just as interesting and engaging as his fourteen oh eight episode uh so if you want to take a listen to it make sure to sign up for our patreon we certainly appreciate it and everybody who does uh is helping keep this podcast going
2: i seem to recall this episode has a fair amount of dark tower talk in it is that true yeah, like the well, low men talking about the low men and yellow coats? yeah
0: of course yeah you can't yeah. talk about hearts in atlantis without talking about Broadigan and and his connection to the dark tower so it's uh there's a reason why Kate and Mike are married. Like, I can only imagine the nerdy Stephen King conversations those two have together. So we figured it'd be a good idea to pair them up this week and and have yeah. Mike on the Patreon and, and Kate on the main feed.
2: And probably not the last you've heard from either of those people on the show. I'm, I bet we end up talking to him again.
0: Oh, yeah. No, we're, we're going to keep bothering Mike Flanagan to come on the show for... You know, I don't know, years, however long this runs, we want Mike back. And mm-hmm. uh, and after having talked with Kate, she's got the exact same invitation he does.
2: We should have them on and make them compete. uh in <laughs> yes. Stephen King trivia and see what happens.
0: I think that they should just fight amongst each other for the honor of coming on the show.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that would work, too. Um, so this this week, uh, A Good Marriage and Hearts in Atlantis, not two of the bigger titles in the King repertoire. But we have a pretty major one uh, next Wednesday, don't we?
0: We do indeed. It's one of my personal favorites. We are covering The Mist next week.
2: Very excited oh, to yes. talk about this one. We've got a very
0: good guest lined up
2: for this one. I'm trying to think of how to hint around the guest.
0: See, he's a funny man. He's uh, somebody that if you've been paying attention to social media in, in the last two or three months, you've probably seen his work. Yeah, that's, that's true it's a great title there's so much meat to dive into with the mist both as a i get is it a short story it it, or is it novella novella, i think i think think it's kind of in between because i think it's like 70 something pages you know i don't know it's in it's in a weird another world but it is one of my absolute favorite shorts and i adore darabont's movie so uh we cover both
2: it's a good one it's a good one you guys are gonna like that
0: so we'll see you guys next week for the mist